You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. Uh, we are fortunate to have with us as our guest today, Pascal Lamy, who among many other responsibilities was the Director General of the World Trade Organization. Uh, welcome, Mr. Lamy. Thank you very much for hosting me. Well, uh, trade and globalization are crucial topics for global order and the transatlantic relationship. So it's something we try to devote a lot of uh, time to here at AICGS and on this podcast. Uh, in fact, going through our list of previous guests, uh, I was uh, I was pleasantly uh, surprised and maybe even a little impressed. We've had uh, as a guest uh, Sabina Vayand, who's the current uh, Director General for Trade at the European Union, Michael Froman, who was the U.S. Trade Representative, uh, Cecilia Malmstrom. Uh, so uh, these are uh, really important uh, topics. And I am joined today by my colleague, uh, AICGS Senior Fellow Peter Rashish, who direct, directs our geoeconomics uh, program. So we'll get right into it. And um, you know, the current period of globalization that uh, started perhaps at the end of the Cold War, um, which we think about today, the day after uh, Mikhail Gorbachev's death, um, uh, globalization has accelerated with China joining the World Trade Organization. Um, and some people say that the World Trade Organization has given China too much room uh, to pursue a state capitalist uh, model. Some people see it as a threat to national sovereignty, um, and others are concerned that global trade is not doing enough uh, to fight climate change or to promote the interests of workers. Uh, Pascal Lamy, do we need a new globalization 2.0, and would that include WTO reform? Well, I, I think uh, a new version of globalization is already in the making. Uh, not a deglobalization, and on this I don't side with those who interpret recent developments on the geoeconomic and geopolitical world scene as the premises of a deglobalization that would succeed a historical period of globalization. But I believe a different globalization is in the making, uh, which, in my view, will probably be uh, sort of slower than the previous one and uh, safer. Uh, what I have uh, called in uh, other places a more precautionist uh, globalization uh, with uh, less uh, fragile uh, supply chains. And globalization was very much about the expansion of supply chains and the multi-localization of production systems uh, with uh, economies uh, that are a bit uh, less uh, vulnerable to uh, geopolitical uh, growing uh, tensions, a globalization which will probably be more environment-friendly. So yes, a different one, which is again uh, shaping under our eyes uh, now, where 
in, if you look at economic sectors where globalization will probably be quite different from uh, the previous uh, era is in the digital sector uh, where the connection uh, between uh, technology, uh, ideology and uh, security uh, is very specific to the digital sector. You don't have that for cars or for shirts or for food. And then on this one, I think uh, we probably need a bit of a different approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, on WTO, uh, yes, uh, WTO has to adjust. Uh, it was late in properly ruling, organizing uh, the second part of the previous phase of the globalization, uh, let's say uh, from the beginning of the year uh, 2000 on, in a fortiori, it is uh, lagging behind in what is changing. Uh, so we, we need a WTO reform, both in adjusting the rule book in areas like the environment and the connection between the expansion of trade and uh, a more sustainable environment, whether it's uh, climate change, biodiversity, water, and so on. We need an adjustment of the reboot for digital trade, uh, because there are, as I said, lots of connections with other areas of public policy, which we may not have in more classical uh, goods or services. And we probably, and that's a legacy, of the previous era of globalization, notably uh, given uh, the role of China, we probably need to adjust the rule book on areas like disciplines for state aids, uh, which are very poorly, poorly disciplined uh, by the existing uh, multilateral rules in the World Trade Organization. On the other side, in my view, and I know that member states of WTO are more reluctant than I am on this, for. Mm-hmm. Visions, I understand. I believe uh, the organization of the WTO itself needs to be rebalanced with more authority for the Secretariat and for the Director General and member states playing their normal role of decision makers at the end of the day on the rules. But the way these rules are crafted, negotiated, proposed, needs a, a much better and more input from the Secretariat, which is perfectly able to do that. And that's a, a political problem, which I think uh, needs uh, to be confronted seriously if we want if we want uh, WTO to adjust. Uh, for, uh, for the rest, uh, there are already evolutions in the WTO that can address part of its limit today. And notably, this rule of a consensus. Uh, I think we are saying we are saying now uh, developments in plurilateral agreements, i.e., agreements that may have the participation and, in terms of rights obligations, of sixty, two thirds, three quarters of the members. That's happening already, and it's I think the clever way. Uh, to circumvent uh, this uh, incredibly difficult Westphalian rule that uh, you have to mm-hmm. agreement of 160 sovereigns uh, before anything can be done. Yeah. Um, you've raised several important points there that we're going to come back to in the course of this conversation. Um, I'm going to uh, ask your indulgence, though, to 
to raise a, a topic that you would probably have perspective on not only uh, from your uh, WTO director general uh, experience, but also as an EU commissioner for trade and as a French civil servant uh, working on finance and economics. Um, we're in the midst of a war that Russia is fighting uh, against uh, against Ukraine and against the European political and security order. Um, and we spend a lot of time looking at Germany's uh, economic uh, relationships, including uh, with Russia. Um, do you think that that Europe has, uh, you know, too willingly made itself vulnerable um, to uh, to Russia, um, uh, including economically, in the course of the last twenty or thirty years? Is there a lesson there that we should also be drawing from that, in your view? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> yes, uh, in the sense that uh, Europe has a very large economy in the era where fossil fuels were the energy uh, to run and develop this economy. Europe was very poor in fossil fuels in its own soil, except for Norway uh, and uh, the UK, and way before that, uh, the uh, gas in, uh, in uh, the Netherlands. What is distinctive of the EU economy is that it's big and has little fossil fuel capacity, which then necessitates to import, to recourse to trade, uh, and EU is very dependent from Russia, from the Middle East, from North Africa, and from America. Yeah. That's reality. Now, if one of these dependencies morphs into an open conflict, like the invasion of Russia in Ukraine, then, of course, it raises a big problem. But the reality is that EU was obliged to import a lot of fossil fuels. And it happened that geographically speaking, there is a big pot very near to the EU as a geographic entity, uh, which is Russia. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have a lot of that. They have gas uh, that is, uh, in many ways, uh, more, I mean, greener <laughs> the way they exploit it than uh, shale gas coming from the US. Uh, and the, you know, that transport by pipe is by far more efficient and less costly uh, than uh, by uh, shipping what has to come from uh, the Middle East or other places. So, in this sense, you was in a way obliged to import what, by the way, economists call fatal trade. Huh? Mm -hmm. You trade not because you have a comparative advantage, but you have because you have a comparative disadvantage, which is the lack of something you really need. And then there are counterparts who have too much of that and who sell. That's a reality. And I think there is a sort of coincidence and there are not many 
favorable coincidences in this terrible medieval behavior uh, by uh, the Tsar of Russia uh, with what they do in Ukraine. But there is one, as far as the EU is concerned, relatively favorable coincidence between the willingness of the EU to move greener and to develop uh, more uh, environment-friendly uh, clean uh, energies. And as you know, the EU has embarked on a very ambitious transformation from uh, fossil uh, fuels to renewable and the necessity for the EU to sever itself from uh, this uh, Russian uh, dependency. Uh, but uh, it must be, I think, clear that in doing this, the EU should not fall into another dependency, which one day, one day, might create uh, the same sort of, of, of uh, security vulnerability. So the, the lesson for the EU is yes, we have become more dependent, but we have to accelerate our move uh, to renewables, which by the way, and we know that, if you look at the geoeconomics and the geopolitics of world energy, we know for sure, and I worked on that on a report uh, which I think uh, for the first time uh, sort of casted some sort of light on the geopolitical consequences of the move to renewables, uh, which was uh, sponsored by uh, IRENA a few years ago, a world with more renewable energies will be less dangerous, less prone to tensions and to competition uh, for energy than at the time of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. I'd like to go back to um, the earlier question about globalization 2.0. One of the uh, potential aspects of that we're hearing more about is, is this notion of friendshoring, uh, which among others, uh, U.S. Tre Secretary of the Treasury Yellen uh, has spoken about. Um, I'm wondering if you see this, um, what, what kind of more political way of deciding who trades with what, and is is that that is going to be an aspect of this future globalization? And you know, as part of that, how do you apply a political filter? When who, who constitutes a friend in international trade, and who makes, and who should make that kind of decision? Well, if 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 you look at history and at trade in general, you don't trade with your friends you trade with people who have a comparative advantage. If I do something better than you do, if you do something better than I do, our objective interest is to trade. And whether we are friends or not, whether I like you or you like me, basically does not matter. The law of international divisions labor is a law about efficiency that creates growth, development, and the whole chain of how you connect international division labor with, at the end of the chain, more welfare. And I do recognize, and I've been saying this as long as I started uh, my life in, in trade, that this chain is long and that you have to look at each element of the chain before declaring that overall, expanding international trade is a good thing for human welfare. Now, to answer more precisely your questions, I think 
you will not trade more with your friends than with your enemies, except that, except that, the notion that we may have enemies that we thought we would never have anymore is back into the picture. And of course, if you have not just, it's not that so much that you don't, you trade more with friends, is that you don't want to trade with enemies. So it's it's non-enemies trade shoring more than friend shoring. Of course, I recognize that in terms of communication, when Yenen or Lagarde uh, talk about this, they call it friend shoring. It, it looks much nicer than non-enemy shoring. The reality, the reality is that if we enter into a period which unfortunately is the case, where we are in for 10 or 20 years of more tense geopolitics, US-China being uh, the sort of big looming issue for the 10, 20, 30 years to come, and the Russian behavior, which I think cannot be interpreted without taking into account this larger political vaccine, if there are enemies that were not there before, you will care about not getting dependent on your enemies on a number of crucial uh, ingredients you need for your economy. So yes, at the end of the day, more geopolitical tension may influence the pattern of globalization and the, the trade flows, but this is not to the point of a government uh, deciding uh, what it imports and what it exports, rating uh, people in uh, different uh, degrees of uh, vulnerability. I don't think markets work like this. I don't think, by the way, governments should work like this. But yes, there is an ingredient that wasn't there before and that will be factored in. And if I mention a specific case of digitalization, I think this is where this connection between security, vulnerability, and international division of labor is uh, the most obvious. Of course, it's not just possible to put more of a political filter on, on whom your trade partners are going to be, but it's also possible to put more of a political filter on, on the effects of trade policy domestically. And if we look at the uh, the Biden administration in the U.S., it is promoting what it calls a worker-centric trade policy. Um, and that seems to include um, a reluctance to engage in any new trade deals that would require the U.S. to open its, its markets further. Do you think it's realistic to expect trade policy to bring about a more equitable domestic economy or domestic society? Well, to be, to be very frank... Uh, I'm. I don't. I don't buy this narrative. I am I'm. I'm a sort of old social democrat. I believe that opening trade is good because it makes your economies more efficient. It helps developing them, and as a consequence of that, it helps developing and increasing welfare. And welfare is a rather general concept that 
opening trade should benefit to everybody. And if you belong to a school of thought that puts social justice or reducing uh, social inequalities more than just increasing the efficiency, you will balance the efficiency and the social impact of international trade. I've always said and written from the very beginning of my first steps in this matter, <laughs> when, I, when I had this to pass this exam uh, uh, to the European Parliament to become European Commissioner, that globalization is efficient and painful. And it's efficient because it's painful, and it's painful because it is efficient. And the pain, the pain, usually, like in all capitalist systems, starts with uh, the weakest in the system, which is why having a trade policy that properly increases efficiencies and a domestic policy that properly distributes the gains of efficiency into a proper welfare is the key. But in my view, it's not trade that increases the social justice part of the development of your economy, it's the way you balance in your economy, winners, losers, in other terms, it's an issue about how you reduce the inevitable social insecurity which more international division of labor produces. So the role of international trade, the role of the WTO is to make trade happen, to facilitate trade, betting on a sort of favorable, more winners than losers overall, but the balance between winners and losers is something which is domestic and which in my view, does not really pertain to trade policy as such, which we must remain to be geared on increasing the efficiency of your economy, but how the benefits of that are distributed. And I'm not surprised that in the US, uh, a government uh, tries uh, to put the load of social justice uh, on trade because they don't put it a lot on their own domestic systems. The, the, this focalization of US trade policy on workers as a social democrat, I mean, of course, it looks fine in, in the narrative, but the reality is that it stems from the fact that, as compared to other developing countries, developed, sorry, developed countries, the US system is less able to reduce social inequalities, to reduce social insecurity, and you just have to look at, uh, at the social safety net which exists in, in US as compared to the one that exists in Europe. So in my view, this is a, a bias that comes from the fact that for a variety of cultural historical reasons, uh, the US is a, is, a, is a capitalism, which is tougher to the weak than others. And then there is a tendency to put the burden uh, on trade. Now, where there is an equity dimension in the organization of global trade is between countries. So in a nutshell, my answer to your important question is trade policies are about creating welfare and the way you distribute this welfare is a domestic issue, while at global level, you have to make sure that the game between winners and losers, this 
internationally efficient division of labor takes place in conditions which are relatively fair, and we have an inequity system within uh, the global system, uh, not least because some are very rich and others are very poor, and developing countries don't always have the sort of capacities to benefit from the theoretical way, uh, sort of Ricardo Schumpeterian uh, model of a, of a trade opening. When you spoke about um, WTO reform, you mentioned uh, climate as being a part of you know one of the areas where the rules need to be updated. Um, at the same time, outside of the multilateral context, you know things are happening. Um, the EU will introduce its carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM next year, a tax on carbon intensive imports. Uh, the German um, presidency of the G7 is kind of has picked up on this idea of a climate club of high ambition countries. You know how how do you see those kinds of efforts um, to to find a, a some kind of new balance between trade and climate? Do you think those those are an effective contribution? Yes, uh, yes, with a number of conditions. Uh, I regularly uh, work with a, one of the three institutes like Delors. There's one in uh, Paris, one in Berlin, and one in Brussels, which are working on European integration, according to the Delors uh, legacy. And the one in Brussels is specialized uh, on uh, environmental matters, greening the EU, including trade. And uh, we uh, were, uh, I was one of the co-authors of the first CBAM, Carbon Border Adjustment Template, uh, that was tabled uh, more than two years ago. And the EU CBAM resembles very much the template which we propose. So in a way, I'm a co-author of the EU Carbon Border Adjustment Mechanism, which I think is a necessity from the moment you have big differences in carbon pricing between economies. As long as carbon price was low, that wasn't a big problem. Uh, you don't need a, an enormous hammer to uh, kill a fly. But now the fly is very big and you need a system. Now, in the proposal we made, uh, we coupled this notion of an EUCBAM starting on some specific areas where carbon pricing matters a lot for uh, competitiveness, like steel, uh, like aluminum, uh, like a paper pulp, like, uh, like fertilizers. We coupled this proposition of an EU CBAM with, with a proposal to create a specific forum in the World Trade Organization where the various ways of pricing carbon and there are many ways to do that, and there is no global agreement on going uh, exchange of uh, trading on emission permits or regulation or taxation. We need simultaneously, if we want international trade to work more for development, we need a table where those who care and who want to go in the direction compare, find agreements on you do this this way, I do it this way, but we are both working in order to uh, green trade. So let's fix the way we are going to compare what we do and take this into account in the way we assess your own carbon footprint. So yes, this is the way to go. It probably will start with measures like border adjustments, 
But this needs to be clubbed, and this is where the notion of carbon clubs uh, makes sense. This needs to be framed by a global conversation so that notably poorer developing countries for whom greening trade may increase the cost or reduce their comparative advantage. So we need both. I think we need measures that will apply at the border. And the CBAM is one of them. And there may be others like the US thinking about uh, regulation, for instance, and not about taxation. But we also need a global frame to do that. And this global frame, in my view, should be in the WTO. Mm -hmm. You know, as with so many questions, uh, these are in some ways also, this is a China question, because these energy, these carbon intensive industries, uh, in particular, are some of those that uh, China has come to come to dominate. Um, uh, And it reminds me of something you mentioned in response to the earlier question, which is about uh, the matter of subsidies, um, uh, either state subsidies or state owned enterprises when it comes to China. Um, So more generally, do you think that um, that the current rules based system deals adequately with China's uh, economic uh, behavior and more importantly, what can be done to um you know to ensure that uh, that we continue to have a mutually beneficial trading relationship between China and uh, other uh, other countries you know when we think about the matter of Germany and Russia as we talked about earlier um of course uh, Germany's economic entanglement with China is vastly greater and across a, a, a many sectors uh, as opposed to the relation the economic relationship between Germany and Russia which is uh, has been largely an energy relationship um so uh, how do you see the the challenge of dealing with China uh now um as as we look ahead well contrary to what I often hear, China does not cheat with the rules of world trade. When China cheats with the rules of world trade, like when US or EU or South Africa or India cheat with the rules of world trade, they are taken (coughs) to the dispute settlement system, which the US has weakened uh, under Trump and Biden hasn't been doing a lot to restore this uh, major offensive against multilateralism. But if we leave that aside, the problem is that China is cleverly using the flaws in the system. And one of the flaws in the WTO rulebook is that state aid subsidizing your economy is very poorly disciplined. There are some rules in agriculture, some. There are some rules in industry, but the way you have to prove that your trade partner subsidizes in a way that creates a disadvantage to you and that the reaction should be proportionate to the side of this. Doing this necessitates an army of lawyers, which many countries cannot afford and which anyhow takes time 
because lawyers are paid uh, by the time, uh, and that's no surprise <laughs> if uh, cases of this kind uh, take such a long time, especially in international courts. So the real issue is that the stitches of the disciplines of the WTO are small in some areas and big in others. And China uses the system with the notion that it is building a sort of capitalism with Chinese characteristic, which is a capitalism where the state has uh, the decision uh, to develop this or this part of the economy by pouring a huge amount of uh, public uh, finance and, uh, and uh, treasury. Uh, that's where we have a serious problem. And as long as state aids will not be better disciplined by WTO, we will have a problem with China. Now, of course, China entered the WTO many, many years ago at a time where it still was a sort of developing uh, country, as we said at the time. And now that they are in the system, given that reforms have to be taken by consensus, you need to trade off with China increased state aid disciplines, provided the ideological position of China is what it used to be and what it is not today, which is that the state-owned sector has to shrink for the economy to develop properly, you have to trade this off against other things. And the reality, in my view, and I've said this many times to my Chinese friends, is that as long as this will not be fixed, China cannot rely on a fairly open international trade system for China. The over-subsidization of the Chinese state-owned sector leads to compensation or anti-dumping or anti-subsidy duties by other countries. So this is a problem, as, by the way, is more generally the coexistence of a worldwide model of relatively liberal market capitalism with one of the major elephants of the planet now in economic and in political terms, having its own version of market capitalism, which, especially since uh, Xi Jinping uh, has been in power, which is clearly and willingly distinctive from the rest of the system, I think the time where we would thought that China would converge are over. Uh, the time is now to organize uh, coexistence more than convergence. And by the way, this is also, uh, I think, part of the problem in the digital area where this issue with China is also quite obvious, but for other reasons than just state aid. I could ask one quick question about the transatlantic relationship. Last year, we saw that the US and the EU launched their Trade and Technology Council. And while it's not a, a trade agreement in the traditional sense, I think it's fair to say it constitutes a, 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 a fairly major push for, for a common transatlantic approach to, um, to a lot of the most important international economic issues, many of which you've mentioned, technology, uh, climate, uh, and other aspects of the trading system. You know, how do you see this kind of bilateral effort that's not a trade agreement in itself contributing uh, to reform and strengthening of the global trading system? Or do you think it has other other purposes? Well, I think, I mean, 
you've answered <laughs> the question in the way you put it. It, it all depends on the intention. Is the intention of such a trade and tech council between US and EU, which by the way, is from the very beginning, a likely unbalanced conversation, given the relative strengths of the US and of EU in the tech sector, uh, you've got a massive element, which is the US, and a partner, which in many areas, not all, but it's clearly uh, lagging behind. So there is a sort of intrinsic imbalance at the beginning, which inevitably, inevitably taints this sort of conversation. But then, in my view, to, to answer the question, whether the intention is to create a sort of platform for governance of the trade and tech nexus, the purpose of which is to provide the rest of the world with a template that then can become multilateral, as was the case by many traditional trade agreements or even regulatory agreements that if you've got two big elephants agreeing on what the standard for uh, safety for cars is, this inevitably becomes a, a worldwide standard. And this is what happened, uh, by the way, between US, EU and Japan for many years in uh, industrial standardization. It is a different ballgame if the intention is to create a body of rules, the purpose of which is to isolate China. And China will have its own rule. EU and US will have their own rules. And because US and EU will have uh, coalesced together, the game in the tech sector uh, between West and uh, China uh, will be uh, more uh, balanced. And the EU then has to choose its camp. I am not quite sure of what the intent is, although what I see from the Tate and Tech Council for the moment is more the US trying to recruit EU in a game that would isolate China. And this is an area where I diverge uh, from the US position. I personally believe, and I've been public on that many times, uh, that whatever degree of threat you believe China is for us, and there are areas where China is a threat. If you look at this uh, triangle, because uh, between China as a partner, China as a competitor, uh, and China as a rival, uh, there are areas where China is a rival, not just a competitor. But I believe that a deglobalized China is more dangerous than a globalized China. And on this, I fundamentally diverge from the uh, consensus in uh, Washington nowadays. Pascal Lamy, um, you have been extremely generous uh, with your time and and with your insights, and we've covered a lot of ground uh, in this conversation. You talked about the new globalization that is uh, underway, the need for a new rule book. Um, you've coined a phrase that we'll do our best to promote um, non-enemy shoring 
Uh, we'll see if we can get that to uh, uh, to you know gain parity uh, with friend shoring. And you've talked about important aspects such as digital, um, climate, and trade. And uh, uh, all of this has been frank and thorough. So I want to thank you for the insights you've shared with us in this conversation. Thank you for spending time with us. Thanks to all of our listeners for being with us on this episode of The Zeitgeist. And we look forward to having you with us again very soon. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.